Kath Irvine's hunting for the real thing. How are you, Kath? Good morning, Kim. I'm really well. How are you? I'm very well. You're in Kakanui, which... Um, Still here. As I said, uh, not far from Oamaru on the Otago coast. Is that where you've settled now? Well, we haven't actually stopped. It's just rather delicious here. We're um, we're <laughs> enjoying the dry spring, Kim. Is it dry? It's quite, yeah, it's quite lovely living without a lot of spring rain. And that would really um, plays out quite well in the garden as well because so many of those fungal issues in our fruit trees come from spring rain, which, of course, if you've got it, you can't really do much about, can you? no. I've got, I haven't got it yet, but every year I get that horrible thing that happens to plum trees, bladder, bladder, bloody bladder plum, (laughs) gall, bladder gall, Um, which is related, I think, to the peach leaf curl, which I get as well. It's horrid. Is there anything I can do about that without spraying it to death? Well, we we come into this whole system thinking, which I'm a huge fan of, as you know, in this regard. So, um, but I would start first of all really with variety, which I mean, you've got that plum there already, haven't you? So look look around though for um, you, you could if you ha- if you had room to start another one. You know, the 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 genetics of the tree play a really huge part in the disease resistance. So it's worth it trying to. Um, hunt out ones and actually local gardeners are an excellent source of advice in this regard it's all very well to look online or looking catalogues promising disease resistance but actually it's the people in your neighborhood who are growing fruit Um, and I know in Wellington there's some pretty cool community orchards out there Um, those guys will be able to recommend varieties which um, are naturally prone to those um, diseases that's where I'd be looking and that's the ultimate that's the ultimate isn't it getting the getting the right variety that really suits your conditions and sidesteps all of these hassles getting the local knowledge that's quite Mm, right that beats any kind of label from the plant center doesn't it totally absolutely yeah yeah, I might be the only so. person who's managed to kill pear trees. I thought pear trees were indestructible. <laughs> um, Usually, come you're quite uh, special that way. <laughs> black curly leaves developed on a pear tree of mine. What's that oh, about? Oh, Lord. I know. I don't even know what, I don't I even know. Know what that is. Now I'm inventing new diseases. Have you been spraying something random? Or... Right. <laughs> yeah, Story of my life. It. We do have a pear question for you, however. It's from Matt. And mm-hmm. he says, my Packham pear is eight years old. It started to fruit, but in the last two years, it's put out little to no blossom. I tried putting fireplace ash on it this winter for potassium, but still no blossom. He's in West Auckland. Do you have any ideas? Not really. Eight <laughs> years old. Although I wouldn't... Um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be mucking around with individual minerals because you wouldn't be putting can, ash on it. No, well, I wouldn't. It's it's really tricky with the minerals, and what is happening below ground is a very intricate, complicated mineral exchange, and it's dependent on soil life, which we've spoken about a lot on the show. So it's really dependent on having a thriving fungal 
um, network beneath your fruit trees. Um, and then, um, but, but to kick it off, you really need good mineral balance and that is a good first port of call. Um, starts to get a bit starts to get a little bit tricky. Look, honestly, what I'd be what I'd be doing is if I was having a um, a pretty full on problem like that with my fruit tree, and that is a problem because usually usually you get the blossom. The more common problem is you you get the blossom and then you don't get the pollination because you haven't got the right pollinator tree. So that's something that's something um, easy to sort. Um, if you you're mean not you haven't the got. Blossom, Pears don't mean need companion trees, though, do they? Yes, they oh, do. Yeah, a okay. pair of pears, a pair of pears. All right. Yeah, so they need a pollinator. There's a, there's a. But anyway, that's like, not think, his problem because he doesn't even get the blossom. That's not his problem. Place. Yeah. So let's right. let's let's finish with his problem. Uh, so, so so he's either got um, just an all-round general lack of vigor in his tree, which um, he could. He could um, rectify with, and I can't see his tree, so I don't know how how well it is. But um, but if he's got an all round lack of vigor, and so that will present itself, you want to have a goodly amount of new shoots every year coming on your tree, and that's a really good sign that your tree has got enough food to generate enough oomph to get your get your flowers and your foliage and everything really humming. That would be my first port of call. And honestly, compost is just the safest and the best. Um, so find some compost, spread it underneath this tree, and then top it off with a woody mulch. And that woody mulch is really important to drive that beneficial fungi. And so, but, it, you know, ideally you get a nice a nice mixed woody mulch. And if you, if you don't have anywhere that you can find that, um, you can quite often um, scurry around and scurry up bits and pieces. Like if you have a fire and you have a stash of firewood, underneath there you get lots of lots of yummy, juicy stuff you might be able to get. I'd also go into any local bush and just grab just a handful of the um, stuff that's growing in the litter beneath the trees for a bit of um, for a bit of beneficial life and fungi, and add that into the compost as well you don't want to put anything rich in there because that's going to be the at the expense that you get you, you end up with lots of foliage and and no blossom which is the danger of artificial fertilizers and all that too all oh, right is that what um, you mean by rich a, yes and right. or it could be manure like a lot of you know it's a common thing to think oh my tree's not working so just throw on lots of manure and sheep pellets, which Kiwis just adore, sheep pellets and blood and bone and all those kinds of things. Um, but those are way too rich for a fruit tree. Is that that's nice? the kind of Yeah, that's the kind of stuff you use for vegetables, not fruits. See, fruit trees are really quite different. Um, and so in their, in their feeding requirement. And so as a, as, a, as a general kind of a base, if you want to take it a step further, then you need to, really get um, a, a soil test done to find out what is missing. But I would, I'd, I'd try that more generalised approach first, Matt, um, rather than the mulch. testing. Yeah, just good old, good old compost and mulch. Not lots of compost, just a nice layer of compost and get some mulch on. And um, the other thing that um, is handy too is to start a, um, a nice herbal lay beneath your fruit tree. Get some um, comfrey planted I was going to there. ask you about comfrey. Oh, yeah. Because I've got comfrey, comfrey under all my fruit trees. It's rock and roll. So that lovely um, that lovely um, taproot just dives through all and the And it doesn't compete. Roots. 
No, so not what at does all. it do? It's, what's what's the advantage of it? So it's mining minerals. It's one of those dynamic accumulators, which is a kind of a cool phrase that we can use in the garden to draw minerals and um, and cycle them up. But into so, itself. And, so how does the fruit tree get those minerals? Yeah, well, they're all sharing underneath the ground. Come, no, they're are so. They? They're so sharing. They're not like us. We could all take a leaf, you know. So the fruit uh, tree gets the advantage of the minerals that is pulled, that are pulled up by yes. the comfrey, even yeah. though you would think that they stay in the comfrey leaves and the only way the fruit tree would get them is when you spread yeah, well, the leaves out. This, well, huh? there's this huge network that's happening and it, there's also around biology. And so the biology is attached to plant roots and the more plant roots that we've got in a system, the more biology we've got. And the biology are facilitating all of the things for our tree. It's not actually the food we put down there. It's actually the biology that are doing all that work of nutrient exchange and immunity. They're, they even warn of pests and disease coming. So um, the, the more diverse plant layers that you've got, the more diverse biology. I mean, this is very simplistic, but it's, it's it's perfect for in a home garden. And the more diverse it is, the more diverse the biology, the bigger the reach of the resource gathering and information and sharing that can happen for the tree itself. Didn't and help my pear a, tree, Kath. Oh, doesn't it? It could no. do. Hasn't. <laughs> Hasn't. I just come free on its own. Uh, Maybe you need to stretch out into more diversity and get some other plants in there as well. Actually, John tells me if my pear tree has black curly leaves, which it does, thank you, John, it may well be Mm. fire blight, a bastard of a disease, he says. It is, but don't, let's let's not jump into that. So if it is Uh, fire blight, uh, you'll have like, it's like a little, it's called like, described as a shepherd's crook. So the ends of the, so they'll be calling, curling over like a little hook on the ends of the twigs and the branches. Is that what's happening? Oh, lordy. Oh, no, doctor. It is a bugger. You need a new one. Oh. All right. Yeah. Go for a go for a sickle. They're they're such a good pair. Say that they're again. So robust sickle. S e c k e l. I think. Thank okay. you. Yeah, e l. I think. I yeah, it's that. a heritage pair. It's a very sweet and very hardy. It's a brilliant, brilliant pair, and it's a, all generally used as an all round pollinator for pears. Interesting, because well. somebody has asked, are New Zealand heritage variety fruit trees more disease resistant? Well, I like to think so, uh, but once again, I'm sure you really do. To, yeah, <laughs> but, I like to think so, yeah. but I want to be uh, realistic. And really, the, the the thing the thing is about the heritage fruit is that um, a, a lot of the more modern varieties are really they're, they're they're bred to be in these modern orcharding systems, and that's the that's a disadvantage for a home gardener. I mean, we, you're not going to be getting out there every fortnight to spray this or spray that or you know what I'm saying so a heritage tree yeah is way more suited to a home environment Um, not to mention um, all the wonderful tests people like I know Mark Christensen and the with um, heritage food crops I think they're called in Whanganui doing all these tests on the heritage apples and man alive they just come up trumps for health you know for eating so there is that if that's important to you um, but it, but I just come back to that same thought again. It's the right variety, really, in the right place. So you want to get that local knowledge and find out which is going to suit your place. 
That's a, actually the key. A yeah. quick plug for your pruning yeah. book, Kath. As an orchardist, says Jenny in Marlborough, I can say <laughs> that Kath Irvine's pruning book is top of its class, and I've passed it on to many. So if anybody's Aww. got questions about the pruning, just head for the book. In the meantime, here's a question. Um, I recently scored a couple of sheep fleeces. What are the pros and cons for using as mulch in the vegetable garden? Um, and there's another follow-up question, but let's deal with the sheep fleeces first. What do you think? I wouldn't use them in the veggie garden just from a practical point of view because they take forever to break down, yeah. <laughs> and that's a real pain. Uh, but, but you know, definitely make use of them. Um, but I'd be using them more around trees or um, actually sheep fleeces are fantastic for preparing ground for where you want to plant trees because nothing grows through them so you can lay some cardboard down or or whatever and just chuck the fleece on top and it will just clear the space for you um, and and drag it around a bit like that preparing spaces um, like an old rug until it basically wears out you know what I'm saying but But I wouldn't. I wouldn't be using them in the in the veggie garden. Well, they'd make the cows a bit super painful. Woolly, wouldn't they? Don't you think? They'd make the wool. They'd, they'd make, make the, the cows a bit woolly. They'd get you know. They get into things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In an yeah. unnerving sort of fashion. Uh, yeah. Can calendula taking over? Says this person, um, who obviously very successful growing calendula. Are the leaves suitable for mulch also? Oh yeah, calendula's not a problem whatsoever. It's such a such a gentle plant, and you can just you can just whip it out where there's too many. And um, I'm a I'm a huge fan of chop and drop mulching. So, which is just quite simply, where a plant is taking over or dominating an area, and you want it for something else, just to slice it off at the ground level. I really like the Niwashi shark for this, but secateurs, whatever you've got. Slice it off and just drop it back on the ground as mulch. I mean, calendula is medicine. It's an amazing plant. You could be harvesting all the flowers and drying them and turning them into a wonderful oil for your medicine cabinet. It's all a right. brilliant, brilliant plant. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, or at the very least, chucking it in your compost pile. And it uh, does. It sells seeds and goes all over the show, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. And actually, those kind of plants, I... I love those companion plants because they keep the ground covered. And you know how earlier we were talking about keeping the ground covered with a diversity of plants in mm. order to attract and draw a diversity of soil life. Um, that Those kind of plants are the real winners, the ones that self-seed and go everywhere um, in your garden. That, or you can call them a living mulch is what we call them. And it saves you the job of mulching. It's also uh, feeding the bees and the beneficial insects. There's there's a there's a lot of wins here with having those kind of plants self-seeding everywhere and covering the ground. They're wonderful. In the plot of land I fondly call my vegetable garden, I have this um, green, creeping, leafy plant that's all over the surface of the soil. Um, mm-hmm. Should I just leave it? Well, what I would do is kind of, yeah, well, it's sort of about, it's a balancing act, that kind of thing, because you also have to be practical. Garden also has to work easily for you, doesn't it? Um, The thing with weeds is that as your soil improves, the weeds will change. And so 
keep on going. I'm a huge fan of just going on top of the weeds and just um, when they're when they're a bit um, tricky or we could say pernicious, you know, difficult difficult ones that are really in there, like vining things, um, maybe peel them back a little bit and then just go on top with some wet newspaper and some more compost and or mulch, one or the other. Um, because that, as well as smothering the weeds, it, it, you're, you're really working towards changing and improving and building your soil. And as you make those changes to your soil, the weeds change. And they change from hard-to-manage perennial tricky weeds to softer, easier-to-manage annual weeds. And, um, yeah, so it just depends on the soil that you've started with as to the kind of weed you have. And weeds are actually in, in, incredible. They're really reflecting to us how intelligent nature is because most of them come with purpose and intent they are actually replacing the minerals that are missing or um and or changing ph they're doing all these kind of jobs that our soil actually needs so it's really great to not freak out so much about them but to sort of honor them and realize oh yeah they're they're playing some kind of role and um and just to be returning them back to the soil by smothering them with mulch is really my sort of best strategy there. We have a problem, says Jen, with guava oh. moss infecting oh, yeah, plum tricky. and feijoa trees. Any suggestions for addressing that? Mm, well, full disclosure here, I've never actually had to deal with guava moss, so, but I do know how tricky it is. I didn't I know, know it that... infected plum trees, actually. I know it's... Fijoa trees and trees related to the Pohutukawa. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I hadn't heard of the I hadn't heard of plum trees either, but I do know that they. Uh, so also, it might be good just to double check that it is the guava moth and the plum too, because yeah, just to be just to be sure. Um, it's very tricky, but I know that they that the eggs are laid on the developing fruits or fruitlets fruits. And then the you know they hatch and they bury in so similar to a codlin moth, um, and so one thing is covering the tree, which is quite often impractical and difficult. But that is one thing with an insect type oh, mesh. Yeah, it gets tangled up and it's. I know, pain. I know, it's a pain. But I'm trying to, oh. <laughs> I'm trying to find something. I, th I think you could. Um, I I know that um, one part, of course, is that the fruits um, drop. When the fruits drop, and they often do because they don't come to full fruition, um, and then you've got the little wrigglers down there. If you have chickens, I think chickens are an excellent thing to be getting under the trees to gobble up the larvae. Um, it, it's a multi-pronged kind of an approach, and I I wonder if um, BT works, which is oh lord, I hate saying this, Bacillus thuringiensis pretty sure I got that correct, is the active ingredient and you can find that um, around the place. Uh, I can't remember what the, sorry, I was trying to remember the name of the product. I can't, it used to be Dipal. Um, it isn't something that you'd want to use a lot of. It is caterpillar specific. So obviously moths and butterflies all start that way. But in an emergency call, I wonder, it would be worth investigating to see if that would if you would be able to use that to manage your um, guava moth. But once again, Jen, I would really go to my local, 
honestly, your local gardeners are the ones, because they're dealing with exactly the same problems as you, I'd be going there to, to, to talk to them. Um, somebody wants to know whether you can get whether you can get away with growing citrus in pots. Will the Italians seem to manage it? Oh yeah, you can um, you can grow you can grow them in pots. You just want them to be big enough um, to allow the root system to develop. Of course, the the thing with the thing with pots is you end up with a lot with a lot more watering and feeding because yeah. they're not net, networked in the ground anymore. Um, something I'm a huge fan of is uh, worm castings for citrus and pots and just keeping keeping the top layer of the pot covered in a really nice centimetre or so of worm castings and then mulch on top of that is, is really fantastic. Um, How big do the yeah, pots have you, to be? Oh, that's a great question. So I've uh, probably, I'm just trying to put a number on it, probably like about a, at least a, a 30 litre kind of a pot. And if you live somewhere cold, and I actually, you know, terracotta and all those kind of things look gorgeous, but they're, they're actually cold. They don't get warm. And also they're really heavy. So to shift around, yeah, if yeah. you did ever want to shift it. So um, so I'm quite a fan. You can You can buy those black those quite big black they might be about 30 liters i think with a handle on each side black kind of plastic tubs if you're somewhere cold they don't look the prettiest but um but they're great because you you can really warm it up um i think a, a citrus in a pot depending on the uh, depending on the climate you are in um you may well want to move it um a couple of times a year um to keep it nice and warm hmm. can we so says can we and Marianne and Nelson wants to know, can we water fruit trees, especially pears, with seaweed fertiliser? Seaweed is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Not too um, rich for fruit trees. Not too rich. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, uh, pretty much an all-round mineral-type supplement. So that's really super useful and really good for cellular strength. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it's not something you'd want to do a lot of, but, you know, could, you know, for a fruit tree, maybe once a month. Um, And you can actually just spray the entire tree, the, you know, the bark, the ground beneath, the foliage, the whole, the whole entire lot. And it's a, it's a great tonic if things are going wrong as well, because you don't, Sometimes if, if things are going wrong with your fruit trees, it's easy, you know, it's a common, common, common thought to, oh gosh, I better, I better ration and feed it. But actually, when you overfeed the tree, you, you exacerbate a lot of those, a lot of those problems. Yeah. So yeah, no, seaweed is a, um, seaweed's great. Do avocado trees, I'm going through the questions here, trying to get through as many as I can, because there's heaps. Do avocados need a pollinator? Some do, some don't, right? Yes, yes they do. This uh, avocados are kind of they're, they're called like an like an A type and a B type, right. and um, and you get you get uh, you get one of each um, to to increase and enhance the pollination. Yeah, just as an enhancement. But you can actually avocados. You can keep them really quite small. They're fun to grow because they grow they fruit on their new seasons wood like a citrus, and so you can actually be pruning them. Um, 
quite hard in keeping them small. You can also get them on smaller rootstocks, as one quarter Zatano, I know, um, as well. And um, and in that way, if you haven't got a lot of space and you want to increase the pollination, you can actually put them really close together, like maybe a metre apart even, and, um, and just prune them um, to be always facing the outside and in that way enhance your pollination and fit a lot in a smaller Hang space on, I'm slightly well. confused. You said that okay. they... They fruit on the new, the new wood. Yes. But if you yes. prune them, you're losing the new wood. Ah, yeah. Well, no, because what you're pruning, this is a great thing to bring up, called thinning cuts, where what you're doing is you're getting in there and removing the longest, tallest branches only and leaving the rest. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's it's. A very tricky thing to describe. I know. Um, you have it the, in your book, your pruning book. Phone, your pruning online, book. But, yeah, this yeah, is yeah, from Angelo. Is... Angelo says that they have a client with a mature mm-hmm. avocado tree in Devonport in Auckland, and it grows fruit, though not in abundance, and it struggles to grow fruit big enough to pick. What do you think that oh. issue is? Well, I'd imagine well, there could be lots of things um, going on there. The f- first protocol that I'd be wanting to look at was just get into the soil underneath it and see what it's like. They are they are heavy feeders and they do do well in a deep mulch environment. And if you're not using artificial fertilisers and you're wanting to do it naturally, you're really going to want to lean on compost and uh, and, a, and a really mixed, diverse mulch. I used to, beneath my avocados, I used to use that for all the chunky, difficult stuff I couldn't put in the compost, like the sunflower stalks and the corn stalks and all that. Um, manure is good for an avocado. See, this is different to a deciduous tree. An evergreen tree needs that little bit more juice and richness than a deciduous tree like an apple or a plum. Sure. Um, it's got to support that canopy year-round. That's always your first port of call. And the other thing is, is you can fresh it up with a with a really good hard, you know, with a really good prune with thinning cuts going in and removing entire branches rather than going around the outside of the tree, which is called heading cuts, which is when, as you so, you know, you alluded to before, you lose the fruit. Right. And you just go around the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have one minute um, to one advise. Minute to advise people to thin. Like if you've got an apple tree and it's got loads and loads of apples on it, get rid of. How many? Fifty percent. Well, it's more—it's more about the space. You just work your way methodically along the branch and thinning. I'm glad you brought up because it's one of those jobs I really rate for tree health. Keeps your fruit steady year on year, and it's more just leaving like one fruit per cluster. So rather than thinking of a percentage, it's about giving in, in each cluster of of fruit just flipping off the small ones and leaving the leaving the one king fruit behind to grow into a beautiful Wow, just one fruit. a cluster. All right. Yeah, well, you've visualised the fruit at the end, yeah, you know, and you imagine oh, it filling it. that space. And not yeah, with that damn pear tree. Yeah. That pear tree's going away. Thank you, Kath. <laughs> Lovely to talk to uh, you. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure, Kath. Have okay, Irvine. Bye-bye.